Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We will read from chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 13, to help us get the context of the verses we'll be looking at. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, it is our longing that every part of who we are would be fully pleasing to you that we would walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in our knowledge of you. But we know how often we fall short, that you are great and greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. So we ask that you would help us by your spirit to live a life that more fully reveals the greatness of who you are that more fully walks in obedience to your commands as we see the greatness of what you've done for us. We know that you showed your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That though we had turned from you, though we had forsaken you, though we were worthy to be condemned by you forever, that you demonstrated the fullness of your love in giving your very own Son to save us. So help us as we see that to give ourselves completely to you. Help us by your Spirit to understand your Word and then to be able to walk in obedience to it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just before we read, starting in verse 21, just to help us understand... What proceeds in this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians is, if you have the ESV, you can see the headings. The first heading is a greeting, where Paul is simply greeting the church. In verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1, it's the heading is thanksgiving and prayer. There he's giving thanks to God for the work that he had done in the Philippians and that he was continuing to do in them. And then he prays that God would cause them to abound in love. Then the next section is called the advance of the gospel. And there Paul is recounting for the Philippians what had been going on. How he had been imprisoned for the sake of Christ. But he doesn't just describe for them what had happened. Instead he gives them a theological interpretation of his circumstances. He doesn't just say, woe is me, look at how much I'm suffering. But instead he says, yeah, this is what has been going on, but this is what God has been doing in the midst of all of these difficult circumstances. And he says how despite his being imprisoned, despite the trials he had been facing, that Christ was being exalted, that Christ was being proclaimed. And that's then this next section is to live as Christ, where he says that his great desire was not to be removed from the trials he was experiencing, but instead it was to see Christ honored regardless of what took place. He believed that he would be released from prison and be able to see the Philippians again, but he says, regardless, whether I live or whether I die, this is my desire, that Christ would be honored in my body. 
And that's then, in verse 27, what Paul exhorts the Philippians to do. At the end of 26, he says that he hopes to return to them, but then, let's start in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only, so regardless of whether I come again, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth, in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then these are going to be our verses that we'll focus on this morning, 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul gives this exhortation to the Philippians that they would have a manner of life that would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that then is the theme which he continues to to write about in these verses we read where he is describing for them what, type, what it means, what it looks like to live a life worthy of, of the gospel. And then he puts forward Christ as the perfect example, the perfect example of how we are to live. And it's within that context that then our verses come that we're going to f- focus on. Because as we saw, verse 12 begins with the word, Therefore showing that Paul is continuing to speak on this same theme that he's been writing about. So in light of what Jesus has done, in light of the, what he did for us, how he lived his life, in light of the fact that he has been highly exalted by the Father, therefore, this is how we are to respond. And you can see in verses 12 and 13, 
He tells us what we are to do. He tells us the manner in which we're to do it. And he also tells us how and why we are to do it. So you can see he tells us what we are to do. At the end of verse 12, he wrote to the Philippians, he said, work out your own salvation. So what were they to be doing? What as believers are we to be doing? We are to be working out our salvation. What's the manner in which we're to do it? We're to do it diligently, and we're to do it reverently. You can see how he exhorted them to do it diligently by saying, you've always done this, but now do it much more in my absence. And they were to do it reverently as well. At the end of verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation, how? With fear and trembling. And then, the last th- and then the last thing is the how and the why. And that's verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So those are the things we'll look at this morning. We'll look at what we're to do, the manner in which we're to do it, and how and why we are to do it. So first is just what we are to do. We are to work out our own salvation. And this phrase is one of the many times in which we see the importance of of reading verses, understanding verses within the context of the paragraph, within the context of the book, and within the context of the entire Bible. Because at first glance, you could look at this and say, work and salvation. Those two words very closely together, and so you could come to the conclusion, what? If you're to be saved... You must work. So why should we not understand Paul as telling us that? Why should we not understand him as saying, if we're going to be saved, then we must work for it? Well, one reason is just if we were to look at other places in the Bible, and in fact in this book itself, is there's a clear testimony to the fact that we are not saved by our works, but we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. So you can look over at chapter 3 where Paul is giving a, a description of all these things in which he used to boast. All these things, these qualities that he believed he possessed in which he pointed to and looked to as the reason by which God would accept him. And he said, it's because of this or because of this. This is why, I'm, this is why I have this righteousness before God. But he came to the conclusion... None of that is of any value before the throne of God. And instead, this is my hope. So in chapter 3, verse 8, he says he counts all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And in verse 9, he says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So whereas before he sought a righteousness by the law, he sought a righteousness, he sought to be accepted by God, he had the hope that he would be saved on the basis of his works, on the basis of his performance, he says, now I've counted all of that as rubbish, and instead this is my hope, this is my confidence, this is where I believe my righteousness will come from. Not from the law, not on the basis of my works, but instead it comes through faith in Christ. That he believed that he would receive this righteousness 
not because he had earned it, but because by God's grace he had been given it. Another clear testimony to this fact is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where Paul declares that it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we are saved. We stand righteous before God, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of the works of another. Because of Christ's perfect work on our behalf, which God has freely given to us. That is how salvation comes to us. So we know then, as we come to this verse in Philippians, though at first glance it could seem like Paul is saying we must work for our salvation, it's clear, no, he cannot be teaching that because the testimony of Scripture is we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Which you can also see by the fact it doesn't say work for your salvation, but instead it says work out your salvation. So what does it mean to work out? And why is that different from working for? Listen to how one author described the difference. He said, Whereas to work for your salvation would mean that it is an objective to be reached or a benefit to merit, to work out your salvation means that it is a possession to ever explore and increasingly enjoy. So when we work for something, it's saying it's out there and we have to go and try to get it. When we work out something, it's saying we have it. Now we need to, need to, need to grow in it, need to think about it more, need to, need to process it, need to need it. So salvation is not something that we have to obtain. It's not, as he says, an objective we must reach or a benefit we have to merit. Instead, it's something we possess, something we have, something that God has freely and sovereignly and graciously given to us in Christ. But it's something that we are then to grow in, something we are to work out. So it's not something that we just receive from God and then we put it on a shelf, or as Sometimes it's described, it's like a ticket that you now have to heaven, and all you have to do is guard that ticket. And if you guard it well enough, then you will make it there. So maybe you go and put it in a safety deposit box at the bank, and as long as it's kept safe, you don't really have to worry about it. It doesn't affect your life. You got your ticket, now you can just live however you want, because you have your ticket to heaven. No, he says, salvation is what? Something we're to work out, something we're to grow in, something we're to think about. How does this affect every single area of my life. So the, the word that is used to describe this process of growing in our salvation is, is sanctification. And sanctification has different, different senses. It's in one sense, we've already been sanctified. In another sense, we are being sanctified. And then in the last sense, we will one day be perfectly sanctified. But here he's talking about this progressive sanctification. That over our life, we would progressively be coming more and more like Christ. We would be growing in our salvation. And so, when we think about working out, the first sense we can think about is this, this fact of growing, 
of progressing, of increasing in that which we already possess. So it's something we have by God's grace, now something we are to grow in. And one really helpful chapter in this regard is is 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter describes what God has given to us and then how we are to respond in light of what he has done. So in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he says what? God has given to us All things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we need to live a life pleasing to the Lord, He has given to us in Christ. And so in light of that, what then are we to do? That's then, He goes on to list all of these qualities that we're to seek to to grow and to supplement our faith with. So we've been given something, and because of what we've been given, we're now to be diligent to grow in that. We're not just to sit back and let go and let God and just uh, sit on the couch and let Him do everything. No, we are to do something now in light of what He has done for us. I always used to talk about cheese balls. You get on the couch, bring out your cheese balls, and you just, just, just sit there, and God's going to do it, right? No, He says, no, be diligent. Seek to grow in this that you've been given. Now, how do we grow? This is... Peter, again, helps us there in, in 1 Peter now. In chapter 2, in 1 Peter chapter 1 at the end, he's talking about how we've been born again to this... To this well, in chapter 1 he says how we, the beginning, how we've been born again to a living hope. And then at the end of chapter 1 he says how we came to be born and that we were born through the living and abiding Word of God. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he says this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So, in light of what God has done for us, put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So how do we grow in our salvation, it's by longing for this spiritual milk that as an infant, and I know this church is very familiar <laughs> with infants, and, and what do infants do when they want milk? They, they cry, or my son's a little older, so now he's starting to like pant because he wants milk when he's, he's ready. So that is what we're to do for the pure spiritual milk. What is this milk? Well, in light of what he's been talking about, it's clear he's speaking about the Word of God. So the way we grow as believers is by having this longing, this desire for the Word. Because it is through the Word that we grow. That we become strong in our faith. That as we... Uh, as a person would exercise or work out physically, we exercise or work out spiritually through the Word. 
Now, kids, help me out. How do we grow spiritually by the Bible? Do we pick up a Bible and start lifting it like this? Is that how we can grow spiritually? That would help our arms, right? But how do we grow in our heart? How do we grow inside of us? It's as we meditate on the Word, as we memorize the Word, as we obey the Word. And you may know Joshua chapter 1. What did the Lord tell Joshua? He said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So what did the Lord tell Joshua? He says, Joshua, this word, my word, is never to leave you. You're to constantly be thinking about it. But not just so that you can think about it. What was he to do? So that he would obey it. So we're to love the word, so that we would think about the word, so that we would then obey the word. And he told Joshua that as you then obey, then your way will be prosperous. Or you might think of Psalm 1, that blessed is the man who does not do all these things, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But what does he do? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Then he is like a tree. Then this prosperity comes as we, again, delight in the word, obey the word, and that is then how we grow, how we mature. So to to work out our salvation means that we are being diligent in studying the Word, in delighting in it so that we can think about it, so that we will obey it. It also, though, means to work out our salvation means that we are thinking out the implications of our salvation in every area of our life. And I just thought, what it how perfect that song, Take My Life, Lord, and Let It Be. Because what, what did the author of the song do? Thought about every single aspect of who we are. That every part of us would be devoted to the Lord. He doesn't just say one aspect, but every single part of who we are. And that is, if we're working out our salvation, we're thinking about, how should my salvation, how should what God has done for me in Christ, impact every single area of my life? So we're, we're meditating, we're reflecting on how does this change the way I live? And within the context of this, of this letter, and with even the, within the passage we read, one of the primary ways in which Paul desired for the Philippians to work out their salvation was in regard to their relationships with one another. Because within the church, there was this conflict that was taking place between these two women. And we read about that in chapter 4, where there were these two women who would not agree. And so Paul is imploring the Philippians, work out your salvation. Think about how what God has done for us should impact the way we relate to other people. And in the Uh, the verses we read at the beginning of chapter 2, what does he say? In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why, though, were they to do that? Why were they to live their life in that way? And it's because of what God had done for them. Verses 1 through 2, he describes all of these benefits that God has given to us in Christ. And then verses 5 through 11, he describes what Christ did for us. And so it's in light of that, in light of the salvation that God has given to us, that we are then to live in this way. So notice he's calling them to think about their salvation and saying, this is the salvation that God has given to you, Philippians. Now this is how that works out into your daily life. And these two women would have been there hearing that, and he would have been calling them, Iodia and Syntyche, consider your salvation and work that out into the way you're relating to other people. So to work out our salvation means that we're growing in it and that we're seeing how this salvation should affect every area of our life. Now, that's what we are to do. Second thing is, what is the manner in which we're to do it? And we see two things in in these verses. We see how we're to do it diligently and we're to do it reverently. First thing is, is diligently. And look at Philippians 2, verse 12, where he wrote to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So again, Paul was writing this from prison, so he wasn't able to be there physically with the Philippians, but he sent them this letter. And he encourage them through this letter that his absence was not to make them lax, was not to make them lazy, but instead his absence was to make them all the more diligent about seeking to follow after Christ. He encourages them by saying, "You've, you've always obeyed. From the first time I was with you until now, you've had this pattern of walking in obedience to Christ. And now that I'm absent from you, you're not to depart from that, but instead, all the more, you're to be diligent about working out your salvation. Notice how, just in the same way, Paul is not here physically with us, so just like the Philippians, but we are hearing his words that he wrote to them. So we're in the same situation. We are absent from Paul. Paul's not here with us. But by implication, we're hearing these words from him, and from the very voice of God, and what is, what is the encouragement? All the more seek to do this. In light of His absence, be much more diligent about working your, out your salvation. And you can think about in this regard the analogies that Scripture uses for, for ministry and for the Christian life. The analogies of an athlete, of a soldier, and of a farmer. And if you think about those disciplines, what is required? What is required is endurance, labor, discipline. And those things are required if the goal is going to be achieved. If an athlete is going to win the race, if a soldier is going to win the battle, if a farmer is going to reap an abundant crop, regardless of how they feel... 
They must do the task to which they've been called because of that which they desire. So they have this objective they are seeking to reach, and because of that, they then discipline themselves toward that end. So in the same way as believers, we are called to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We're called to work out our own salvation with diligence, with endurance, with labor, not to be lax, not to be indifferent, not to be distracted, but instead to be focused upon this task of becoming more and more like Christ. So we're to do it diligently. Also, though, he says reverently. At the end of verse 12, work out your own salvation. How? With fear and trembling. So as one, this is how one author describe this. He says, one does not live out the gospel casually or lightly, but as one who knows what it means to stand in awe of the living God. So to fear God, in part, means that we are to have this humble recognition of who He is. That in light of the fact that the Lord is the sovereign Lord over all, we are to have a humble awe before Him. And this makes perfect sense in light of verses 9 through 11. Isn't it striking if you're reading through chapter 2 and you come to verses 9 through 11, where the Father has highly exalted Christ, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that before him every single knee would bow, every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then what would you write after that? What did Paul write? He says, therefore, work out your own salvation. So he gives us this exalted picture of who Christ is. And then he says, in light of that, in light of that fact, in light of that truth, and with that in the forefront of our mind, therefore, work out your own salvation. So we are to have this humble awe before the Lord because of who He is. Because of the fact that He sovereignly reigns over all things. So we ought not to have a fear in the sense of of terror of what God might do to us as His children. But there ought to be a sense in which we never want to do anything that disappoints Him. And we recognize, as the author of Hebrews says, that our God is still a consuming fire. By God's grace, we are brought near, but He is still who He is. So like Paul, we should have our aim in life be to please the Lord in every single thing we do. That that would be our focus, that would be our mission in life, that we would live a life that is pleasing to Him. So consider again how this works out into our daily life. Consider with these two women who were within the church and who were were quarreling. When they were refusing to forgive one another, refusing to be united to one another, what do you think they were thinking about? Do you think they had this picture of Christ in their mind? It is highly unlikely 
And one way we can just think about that is when we are having a conflict with someone, when we are refusing to forgive someone, what are we thinking about? We are meditating on every single thing that that person is doing to us or not doing to us or should be doing that they're not doing. And how different would our relationship be? How different would our, our heart be if instead of focusing on what they're not doing or what they should do, we saw Christ as the one who has been highly exalted, as the one who has been given the name that is above every name? Or even, again, if we had Jesus right beside us, And he was listening to everything that we were saying or everything that we were thinking, which he is. Do you ever have that when when you're interacting with someone and you don't realize anyone else is around and then all of a sudden you realize someone else was standing there? How do you feel? You feel like, wow, I really am scum. (laughs) You were so focused on what they were doing and then this other person makes you wake up and realize how you're acting. So how does it, should it affect us when we realize who Christ is and the fact that he is with us at all times? When we do it reverently in this way, it will change the way in which we relate to others. So as believers, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have this humble awe of who Christ is and what he has done for us. But as an unbeliever, hearing this, vo- hearing this command should produce in you a deep sense of terror. If you are here today as one who does not know Christ, as one who continues to reject Him, or if you are here as one who claims to follow Christ, but you have not been working out your salvation, you've just been living your life however you please then you ought to reflect, is my profession genuine? Is my trust in Christ real? Or have I just done something on the outside? Because the truth is that as verse 10 and 11 says, every single knee will bow before Christ. If we confess Christ joyfully now, if we've humbled ourselves before Him now by God's grace, then on that day we will do so joyfully. But if you are here today as one who continues to reject Him, as one who simply comes here because someone is making you, then realize on that day when you stand before Christ, you will acknowledge Him as Lord, but you will acknowledge Him as Lord because you have been brought under submission by His force. That He will have conquered you And so you will confess that he is king, but it will be as an act of his judgment being upon you. We see this in Psalm 2, where there is connection to what Paul is writing in Philippians 2. Because in Psalm 2, what do we see? We see how the author describes all the nations raging and saying of God, let's get rid of God, let's burst his bonds apart, let's cast away his cords from us. They're saying, let's be in charge. And what does God do? Is He saying, oh no. Now these people are finally going to overthrow my kingdom. No. It says, Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What is he saying there? He says God has appointed his king. And what is his king going to do? His king is going to establish his kingdom. And he will do so by force. Those who have humbly acknowledged his lordship will be welcomed by him. But those who continue to reject him will be judged by him. And so in light of that, how ought people to respond? He says in Psalm 2 verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise... Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Notice fear and trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So in light of who Christ is, in light of what He will do, what is the call? It's to humble ourselves before Him, to acknowledge His Lordship, to worship Him, to serve Him, to come to trust in Him. Because those who take refuge in Him are blessed. So what are we to do? We're to work out our salvation. How are we to do it? What manner are we to do it? With fear and trembling. Last now is, is why are we to do this? And how is it possible for us to do this? So back in Philippians 2... Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved brothers, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And what a blessing that Paul didn't just stop there. But he gave us verse 13 as well. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. So how are we able to do this? Why should we do this? For it is God who works in us. So God's... This salvation that God has given to us isn't merely just that we've been forgiven of our sins, but it's that He is daily working in us. He is daily at work in us. And what is He working to do? Paul says He's working to will... And to work. To will means he's, he's working to change our desires. I used to, when I was young, my family went over to uh, San Andreas to help restart a church over there. And there was an old guy who had an accent and he used to say, God changes our want-tos. So he changes our, our want-tos, meaning the things we want to do, the things we desire. He's changing the things we will to do. That God is at work to do that, but He's also at work to work, meaning He's working in us to give us the strength we need to do what He's causing us to desire to do. So God's not only changing what we want to do, He's also then giving us the strength we need to do that. And what is God working? Why is God working to do this? God's working to will and to work for what purpose? For his good pleasure. 
Not to make us healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, as the prosperity gospel says. But also notice he doesn't say God's working to make us feel and function better, which is what secular psychology today is is seeking to do. But instead, why is God at work in us? He's working for His good pleasure. He's working so that every single part of us would be pleasing to Him. So God is at work in us. And just consider for a moment how despite all of the, the secular counseling and psychology today, how it, it just abounds. I don't know if you've seen the signs different places that has hope, California hope, and how you can call a line and get counseling because of all that's been going on. It is just abounding. And yet, as much as all of that is abounding, the, the struggles of people is abounding as well. The, the world is declaring a mental health crisis. So that is the state that people are in. And consider how, with all of that, what, what does all secular counseling, all secular psychology, what can it offer? It can offer some, some coping mechanisms. It can offer some, some behavior management. It can help us try to manage the problems we're going through or to cope with them. Or it can say you need to set up these boundaries to try to get out these things away from your life that are causing your problems. But what do we have in Christ? We have God at work in us. And so, though as an unbeliever, an unbeliever cannot experience true change because they are still dead in their sins, they are still enslaved, they are still blind, as believers we can have great hope that true and lasting change can happen because God is at work in us. Not because we're better, but simply because He has sovereignly chosen to do that. And so no matter how difficult the relationship may be, no matter how paralyzing the anxiety may seem, no matter how deep the darkness of depression may be, we can have hope that we can experience true and lasting change because God is at work in us. And He is going, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 6, He who began this good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So we can have hope that we can really change because think about it. God is at work in us. Consider how how out of place and how uh, foolish are, are the excuses we make about how we can't change because either we've, we've done this for so long or it's just who I am or it's my, it's my um, upbringing or it's what all these things that have happened in light of the fact that God is at work in us. He who spoke and all came to be. He who, who commanded and all stood firm. He who holds the all things in his hand, who can measure the waters in his hollow of his hand, who marks off the heavens with a span, who has numbered every single star and sustains them all, whose counsel none can stay. He is the one who is at work in us. 
And so we can have confidence that we are able by His grace to grow in our salvation, to be transformed, no matter how difficult it may seem. We can have confidence God is at work and He has a perfect plan. So again, consider these two women, Iodia and Syntyche. How should their relationship have been different by this fact? Is this this truth of God being at work in us should have encouraged them. Because they could have known what? No matter how difficult this relationship may be, I know God can bring about reconciliation. And even if He doesn't, I can be content in the circumstances. Because again, it's not first and foremost about feeling and functioning better, but it's about pleasing the Lord. And regardless of what is going on, we can please the Lord in our lives because of the fact that He is at work in us. Consider 1 Corinthians 10.13 where Paul says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So he says, it's going to be hard. You will have to endure it. But God is faithful. And we will never be in a circumstance where we are not able to please Him. No matter how difficult we may feel it to be, we can know this is true. We are able to please the Lord. We are able to grow in our salvation. So they could have known that. And so... What is this task to which we are called here? We're called to work out our salvation. We're called to do it diligently and reverently. And we are able to do that and we are to do it because of the fact that God is at work in us. So as we close, it's just asking this question, is where are we looking today and who are we beholding? And our family will ask this question is, have you seen Jesus today in our struggles, in our difficulties? Are we seeing Jesus? Are we seeing him as this one who has been highly exalted before whom we will stand? Or is our focus upon all these things that are going on around us? Like these women, is our focus upon what these other people are doing to us? Or instead, by God's grace, are we beholding Him as the one who is reigning over all? Because as we behold Him, we will be changed to be like Him, and so we will grow more and more in our salvation. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You for that truth that You are at work in us. How we long to work out our own salvation in response to what you are doing. We want to grow to become more like Christ. We want to please you in every single thing that we do. So please help us. Help us to be diligent in that. Help us to have that reverence at all times as we behold you so that you would be glorified, so that you would be exalted in us. We know that you are worthy Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So help us as your people to see you more, 
and to walk in obedience to your commands. For we love you and we long for you to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.